Welcome to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation podcast. I'm Vicky Tung, Head of Futures and Innovation here at the Centre. Today I'm delighted to be talking to Philip Goodwin, Chief Executive Officer of Voluntary Service Overseas, more commonly known as VSO, the leading global international development organisation working through volunteers to empower communities living in some of the world's poorest and most overlooked regions. In this interview, we're going to discuss themes of uncertainty, strategy, leadership and narrative, picking up themes from two publications, one from the centre and one from a paper which Philip co-wrote 10 years ago when chief executive at another organisation called Triate. But the ideas are even more relevant than ever today. So Philip, thanks very much for joining me today. Yeah, pleasure to be here. So we'll pick up on some of your ideas on leading strategy as a journey of not knowing from 10 years ago. But since then, you've joined VSO as chief executive for the past six years. As context, could you briefly share a history of some of the main organisational changes or challenges which you've been working with at VSO over that period? Well, let me, let me perhaps start here that one of the things that I was thinking about when I, when I first came to VSO in terms of establishing a rhythm around the big strategic questions was to, to think about how we could improve our effectiveness as, as an organisation how we could become more adaptable as an organization and how we could be more sustainable in terms of how we operate. And I've used those three sort of organizing principles as a way of interrogating what we do and how we do it. And I think that perhaps there are two big phases of change over that six-year period. And the first was really to make sure that we were clear about what we were offering as an organization. So if you like thinking about our USP as a volunteering for development organization, what does that, what does that feel like? So that on the one hand, and then thinking about how we could get closer to, to the people that we're trying to support and work with. So what we call primary actors, what other people call beneficiaries, get closer to, to them. And I suppose that, that, that piece was the main first challenge, and that sort of took up, uh, I suppose, the first three years. And the second three years have been really thinking about how we take our work, for want of a better phrase, to scale. So how we can make a bit of bigger contribution to delivering on the sustainable development goals. That's the big thrust, if you like, of those sort of two sort of three-year periods, sort of slightly sort of putting a neat and tidy piece around it. But I think that's the main thing. And so for me in that first phase, there was a lot of stuff trying to make sure that we were better organized in terms of flattening the organization, reducing the sort of layers of management and direction, and what I would call the transactional costs in the organization. So, for example, we had a nascent federation at that time. We dissolved the federation, made our whole organization much more simple in terms of how it was governed and managed. We flattened the leadership structure. So, you know, we had a very large executive team, but we reduced it right down, reduced the sort of organizing layers right out create this dispersed leadership model as well. So there was lots of stuff like that going on. At the same time, we were trying to sort of really think about what was our sort of method and approach that was distinctive and how do we evidence that? How do we formalize our approach? I think perhaps on the second phase, there's two things. So one about taking our work to scale, so making a bigger contribution. I think at the same time, making sure that we become more accountable to primary actors, more accountable to the people we support. So really thinking about how that that plays out. And when you're talking about scale, it sounds like you're talking as much scaling deep as kind of scaling wide. If you like, scale in terms of both replication and in terms of amplification. So the replication, what do we do well and how do we repeat it, but, you know, larger, if you like, 
And then how do we amplify through evidence, influence, knowledge sharing, and all the rest of it? So if I can simplify that, there's some stuff that we do around, say, within education programming, some of the work that we do in education and emergencies. So how do we take what we know in one place and think about how it might be worked into other places? But at the same time, thinking about all our work in active citizenship and civil society space, which actually is opening up civil society space for, you could say, millions and millions of people through the work that we do on national volunteering policy, volunteer standards, volunteer engagement. Yeah, so really thinking about that. So, so different, two different bits. I know you've had the chance to read the Centre's publication, which we put out earlier this year, on strategic decision-making in a whirly world. Mm. We came up with five main pointers to help decision-making in complex, uncertain times. What resonated with your experiences from what we included in the report? I think it's in many organisations, and it's a human condition, people want to focus on certainty. So they want to know, what's the decision? What decision are we taking now? And I found this in senior management team meetings when I first joined. We would have a senior team get together and people want to focus on uh, spending three expensive days because you're drawing a lot of resource together. They want to focus on, we've got to make decisions in this space. I always say to them, no, this is the space where we build our capacity as a team to make decisions outside of this space in the other 220 days a year when we're working, when we need to make decisions. It's not about making decisions in this space. It's about building our capacity to make decisions. And there was a lot of pushback on that because people, they want to go to, well, what's the decision? What's the decision? And my view is really you have to think about how decisions are made and build the capacity for those decisions. So I suppose that was a big piece for me. I suppose another piece that I would pick up on is this, this, this collective intelligence. That's something that's sat very firmly with me in terms of we have an approach to what we call dispersed leadership. That's how we, we lead the organization. And for me, that's about maximizing insight and innovation. So if you think about our working global complexity, we're trying to do two things, it seems to me, which is we're trying to cross boundaries of power and hierarchy. So you're trying to sort of build connections and understanding between people who are either powerful because of their political authority or because of their expertise or whatever. Um, and at the same time, trying to build a horizontal integration of ideas across communities. And again, they, those might be communities of geography or practice or whatever kind of community you, you have in, in place. And, and so that very much resonated with me as two things. I, I found actually all of it very interesting, but, but certainly those two things uh, resonated with how we've approached things at BSO. Your dispersed approach that you also describe also extends to strategy. So I'm really interested in how this approach, this kind of distributed approach to strategy has, has evolved and how it works in VSO. My concern about strategy more generally is an approach that is what I would call very transactional. So it's not just within the formal hierarchy, but actually dispersed leadership says actually anyone can be a leader if they are having influence on you know, process or, or, or outcomes or any part of the organization. So we all constantly shift around who is taking on leadership and who's taking on followership. But certainly within the sort of strategic leadership team, that dispersed leadership is, is genuinely dispersed across the world. So we don't, have, we don't have a headquarters. So we have a strategic leadership team, which is based in staff members in Delhi, the staff members in Phnom Penh, the staff members in Cape Town, in Nairobi as well as in the UK, but they are genuinely dispersed. I suppose for me, if strategy is emergent, which I believe it needs to be in a complex world, that requires multiple perspectives. If it requires multiple perspectives, then it's a job for everyone. 
and it, and it felt very much to me that if you're siloing strategy with strategists as a full-time job, it's creating tunnel vision and it risks undermining ownership. So what you can have, I suppose, is what I might what we might call business partners who support people, support that that wider dispersed leadership to write strategy. It's not a, a sort of standalone task. You know, that's really you know, how we've approached it. So we have a strategic leadership group, which is made up of 15 of the critical functional leaders. And strategy emerges from what I would call generative conversations. So they're open discussions. We start to think about the issues. We run a lot of short breakout groups where people are thinking about things, feeding that back in. We then try and write some stuff down. We reflect on that. And there's also a piece of work, which is when we get to potentially difficult issues, the challenge for me is to think about, well, what is, to spend more time thinking about what the issue might be. Think about who are the best people to, to help answer that, that question and let them do the work. And again, those don't necessarily sit in a formal strategy group. I think that the same applies to policy, actually. I mean, we don't have a policy division either. And so the risk is for us as an organization is because we don't have the same structures as everyone else. People think, well, they're not doing it. And I, I suppose that's a challenge for us in making sure we keep explaining how it is we're working why we don't have a policy unit, why we don't have a strategy unit. But I would also argue as well, this is part of the challenge of being dominated by the global north, that the bulk of those strategy groups and the bulk of those policy groups that sit in many organisations that are in the global north still, and they're still dominated by it. And that's also a challenge for us. That was partly why I was really keen to do this interview, you know, to see and to find out more about this dispersed model that you have, which isn't necessarily where other organizations are at but to also share the journey that you've been on over the past few years it is a challenge and again we, we experienced this challenge with donors actually as well with you know, bilateral and multilateral donors so we had a particular challenge for example from giz and this this affects not just strategy but actually delivery but because we don't have a formal headquarters with a centralized what they would recognize as a centralized team which is a group of people sitting together they would then ask questions about well so you're not, you don't run compliance globally and you don't run strategy globally. And you go, no, no, we do, but it's within this range of posts which are spread around the world, primarily in the global south. And they go, okay, so you don't have strategy then, you don't have compliance. You go, no, no, no. And, and actually these are, you suddenly realize you're in this world of what I would call category error, which is neither of you recognize your structure. And certainly, you know, we've had that challenge trying to explain, well, how we do this through a dispersed team. Now, I would argue, of course, that actually I think it's in a complex world, it's better to disperse that team. But it does require a lot of investment in building the trust, working practice, culture and all the rest of it. Yeah, I think that's really interesting about not just making the journey yourselves, but making sure that other people understand what journey you're going on and, and, and why you're doing it. And it's not easy. You have to keep returning to it and, and to reminding you know, your team, well, why are you doing this? Why is this the approach we take? And if I go back to when I first started at BSO, it wasn't straightforward. And I say, you know, we had a lot of pushback in, in the first instance with this much larger team, that, what I would call this very heavy top-down hierarchical structure that was at BSO, which I think then reflected where many organizations are. And, you know, the, the people would be trying to get people to think about the sort of curious questions that open up, open up challenge and reflection. And people would be less comfortable in that. They'd be saying, well, why are we not getting on with the work? And what they meant is, why do we not just return to certain decision-making? Or you can take more time in this uncomfortable or discomfort around the fact we don't know and, and get to a better better place over time. That's quite a, it's quite a tricky thing for human beings to, to live with and for many, many people who want just 
Well, we need to get on with things. We need to act. And people I've found, a lot of people want to act, even if they don't know whether the actions are right. They just want to get on with things. And that's, that's a challenge, trying to sit with, with not knowing and with uncertainty. Yeah, so building on that and the people's need to act or want to have some kind of plan, I love your reflection in in your paper on the absurdity of any organisation consuming precious staff time and energy on these big planning exercises, which assume you can actually control for the unknowable and how this can be damaging, not just by deflecting attention from results and impact, but also giving a full sense of security and perhaps actually undermining the confidence of staff to be able to cope flexibly with uncertainty in some of the ways you've been talking about. How has this kind of thinking around less planning and your more distributed approach to strategy worked on a practical level for for different members of your team and how you've engaged them in being more comfortable without having a plan and and accepting that you can't have a plan? We certainly did the initial work with the senior leadership group. And as I say, I don't want to pretend this is easy. So, so with the strategic leadership group we have in place, so I have an executive board of four of us. So we have a very small executive team. And that's helpful in a way because you have a very tight team. You know each other very well. You can provide a sort of holding space at that level. And then beyond that, we have a, a wider strategic leadership group, which is what I would call the functional leadership of the organization. And because we work very closely together, many of us have worked together now for quite a long time period of time across that six years, so not the entire six years, but many of us have worked over that, those six years. You build a high degree of trust and an understanding, and, and that, is, that really helps us in terms of being able to hold at that level sort of the unknown. And I, I suppose that that has taken time to establish. You're then asking that strategic leadership group to cascade the understanding to the wider organisation. So you're asking people to build alignment and ownership not just of what we're doing, but how we're doing it. And that is a constant practice, actually. So I don't want to try and pretend that that is immediately obvious to everyone, because everyone has, every organisation has turnover of staff. Trying to recruit people into the value space, not just of what you're trying to do, but how you're trying to do it is also important. So trying to get people, people into the organisation who are comfortable or more comfortable with this way of working. I mean, for me, I really believe in this idea of strategy almost as vectors, if you like. And I've heard this term recently. I thought, ah, yeah, that resonates with me. So I'm not a mathematician, but in vectors, you describe a direction and you measure momentum against it. So how fast you're moving against the direction. And really, that's what we try to do with strategy. So our strategy is very, very short. It's three pages long, perhaps two and a half the last strategy. And what we really try and outlined in that is a little bit about who we think we are. So a story of our identity, where we think we're positioned in the world. And then what we try and do in the next phase of that is try and say, well, what do we think the movement has been over the last period of time? And what might be the strategic shift that could happen over the next period of time at a very sort of high level? And we do that around three particular areas of concern for us. And that's really just setting a direction. What goes underneath that then is is what we call a, a sort of operating plan. The operating plan itself is also very short. So currently it is 32 bullet points, and those bullet points are mostly single sentence statements. So occasionally we're allowed to use a conjunction, you know, really, really simple statements as far as possible, which say, what do we think are the commitments that will get us into the next phases of delivering that strategy? So it's almost like, how do you take the next step? And what is the next step might be? 
So we keep challenging our teams to say, look, if that's the direction, what would be the next step that would take us into a place where we think we can make progress so that we can then consider what the next step might be? It is very iterative, very emergent. What is good about that, I think, in terms of building up understanding is we really push the ownership of those commitments right through the organization, both the commitments and the actions we take against them. What it allows us to see against the operating plan is very often in plans, you get to the end of the strategy in the planning period and you go, well, let's dust the strategy off. Oh my God, you know, we had a strategy. Did we do it? Oh no, we didn't do half of it, but never mind. We'll move on to the next strategy. What it allows us to do in real time is keep looking at the commitments. And what you, you find is very often you go through it and you go, actually, there are five commitments here, which we've, we've done nothing against. We've made no progress. That allows you to start asking a question about, are we really committed to this? We may not be committed to it. If we're not committed to it and we haven't done anything on it, do we really believe we should still be doing something on it? Is it a, is it a sort of a failure taking that commitment seriously and thinking of something to do? Or is it because actually it's just not relevant? And that's been really helpful for us because on a number of occasions we've dropped commitments because we've gone, actually, that commitment is, is badly phrased, it's not really clear, or it's not something we're actually committed to because it's important. And we've done that consistently throughout the strategy and, and operating plan period. And it brings a degree of accountability and honesty to the, to the strategy and planning process that I think has been really helpful. It means that people have to live with the strategy and operating plan almost at all times. It's, it's a live document, it really is live, and we, we, we keep speaking to it and discussing it and sense checking it. So it's, I think that's how we've tried to, to, to bring it alive constantly. I think that's that's really interesting on the on the strategy and planning and moving on to kind of the role of leadership within that understanding. You describe the importance of leaders as accepting how unknowable and actually unsolvable by their very nature that these complex, wicked problems are and the importance that leaders emphasise flexibility rather than these approaches that try and attempt some effort at control, which is futile in these in these circumstances. And that the main functions of a leader is to help others also accept this unknowability and this uncertainty and focus instead on the way challenges are framed, how people connect to discuss these challenges and enable this culture and environment of inquiry, reflection, adaptation and creativity. Could you talk a bit more about how you've encouraged this kind of culture at VSO and through your leadership, please? Yeah. So, so again, I suppose it goes back to something I've mentioned early on, which is trying to get, certainly in the first instance, the strategic leadership group to think about this way of working. And I say it wasn't straightforward. At that point, I used to bring in a facilitator to help the team, just because it's so tricky, actually. And um, we had some very challenging meetings at that time. Interestingly, at that, at that point, I didn't try and place myself too much into the meetings. In some ways, I was trying to create a lot of space. So again, I think a lot of leaders in that space try and step into it through their own like personal will, try and sort of corral everyone. And I almost did the, the contrary, which is, and it's not really my style, if you like, which is to sort of step back and to just hold the space, keep putting the questions back to the group. And, you know, the work, I remember in the first couple of meetings where we're bringing a lot of colleagues together. So this was probably over a six month period, two meetings quite a lot of pushback. People going, well, we don't know, <laughs> why are you not telling us more? And, you know, why are you not directing this? And of course, you know, 
I would love to, you know, there's a bit of me that goes, oh, I'd like just like to, it should be this way or that way. But I really felt as though, unless that team built up their own capacity to have those conversations and to deal with the difficult issues, we wouldn't get very far. And I was trying to, I suppose, trying to put them in the space where they were having to live with uncertainty and the fact that there was no parental figure coming to resolve it for them, that they were the senior leadership. It wasn't going to come back to, often people look at you as a, as a chief executive and they go, well, why are you not telling us? And, and you sit there and you go, well, because actually we are the senior leadership. So don't imagine it's coming from somewhere outside of yourself, that you can't other it, if you like. One of the techniques we put into that, along with the things that you've described around framing and, and connections and inquiry, was actually to explore dilemmas. We spent quite a lot of time thinking about what the challenge was or what the particular issue was. And, and I think it's, if I emphasize again, I think it's really important to think about what is the real challenge. Often people miss diagnose the challenge for an organization and spending a bit more time thinking about but is that the real challenge is important what we then did was a stage of thinking about dilemmas around resolving that challenge and often the way people describe dilemmas is they think about a good way to go forward or a bad way to go forward and they go well we'll do the good way and you go well that's not a dilemma a dilemma is when you you do this and the benefit is x but actually the, the problem with it is y or you do this and it has a similar benefit or a disbenefit getting people to think about those dilemmas and to, to sort of own well, which way do we respond was also important because you know we're always dealing with uncertainty whichever way we go we know it will have some positives and some negatives and some things we know and some things we don't know and that's been a really healthy practice actually and it's, it's a way i think of maturing as leaders which is we tend to think we're always heading to the sunny uplands and actually we're not you know this is the real world where we just don't quite know where this will take us and so living in that space of dilemmas and difficult choices is really important, I think. And, and there's been a real maturing for us as an organization. And it continues to be one. We do go through planning exercises. We are thinking about, well, it's difficult dilemmas. And we try and push those down in the organization as far as we can. So people also feel this sense of ownership. And there, again, there is no parental figure coming to, to rescue and tuck us all up in bed, if you like. So you've, you've kind of distributed this sense of discomfort and this sense of comfort with uh, uncertainty ac across the organization and this kind of more dilemma-based trade-off thinking I guess based on the information that people do have, have available. You also talked earlier about collective intelligence have you found that by sharing that sense of uncertainty and discomfort you're also seeing much more proactive sharing of intelligence and creativity around how to respond or potential responses to that uncertainty as well and that you're seeing more people contributing towards that sense of shared intelligence and, and shared solutions as well. Certainly in the strategic leadership group but also more widely so the fact that we can sit as a group of 15 and draw people into that group of 15 and beyond who are happy to sit with what I would call generative conversations. What I mean by that is an idea is introduced and it goes into what I would call an upward spiral of conversation, which is that's interesting and, um, and, and people thinking about it. And there may be a challenge in that, but it doesn't get locked. What I would call often conversations, particularly in dispersed leadership. So, so maybe I'll say this, people often misunderstand dispersed leadership. They think it's about consensual leadership. They think it's about committee decision-making. It's actually less about that and and it's less political actually and i mean there's always some degree of politics and organization but you will not see that i would challenge you to see it in a strategic leadership group meeting at bso so what it is is much more around taking ideas and then adding to them and thinking about them so you don't get locked in this 
either a circle or a downward spiral. Often conversations go, well, I don't agree with that. That's not right. You know, and you suddenly get blocked and it, it, it sort of starts to unravel. So we're certainly seeing, seeing that in these, what I've called generative conversations, and really helpful in that way. And people, people being honest within that, that's a really important part of living with discomfort. So people can, can add to stuff. They're happy that, that we don't know. So I think one of the other things that we touched on earlier was how do you, how do you build certainty and uncertainty? One of the thing is build certainty about the next steps you take. And you can feel confident if you're clear about, well, here's, here's a, a challenge. We think we've got the best grip on the challenge that we can have at this point, that we're aware of the dilemmas we face in that. And we've collectively decided that actually this is the next step. And we can be confident about that next step. We can be confident about that because we are, and this is a key principle for BSO, we're reflective in our practice. So we will take that step and then we'll consider and consider at speed. So again, it's not a slow process for us. It is a quick process of conversation. And again, one of the things I'm really proud of over, the, over COVID, when COVID hit, we managed to pivot 80% of our program within 10 working days, revised our strategy to respond to COVID within 10 working days. And that was done not by me. So it was a group within the strategic leadership group who basically reframed, reframed the strategy within 10 working days, set the framework up, and then set people to work in terms of thinking about what would be the response to that framework. Again, we've been recognised certainly within the work we did for the UK government, who have spoken actually publicly about the fact that we were actually pivoted in that day. That, that's the proof of the pudding, which is in the eating. You, know, could you, you could do that at scale without lots of committee meetings, with a great deal of consensus, and there's been no pushback across the organisation in the whole of the last two years about what we did or how we did it. People were moved into the action space in a productive way because we didn't have to set out the whole plan. We set out what the next what next steps were within a clear frame. And I think that's, again, the other change I would say at BSO is that where in the past we used to have to facilitate meetings, now we, we facilitate and curate ourselves. So there's a, a certain maturity in that that we can rely on ourselves to hold that discussion and, and to pass the baton to different people within the group who can hold our discussion. And there's no pushback on that. I think that's, again, a sign of maturity in terms of how we work. Yeah, I think you're then really seeing the, the results of the six years that you've been putting in, in terms of building that culture broadly across the organisation. I also want to be honest, you know, it, it's a constant work in progress. It's not, the, it's just not, it's qualitatively not the same. So there's always bits of it where you have to bring attention. So there's a, a concept, I don't know whether, whether you've come across this, Vicky, or, or the listeners will come across it, but there's this concept of rackets, which is a really interesting one, I, I think, which if, if people look it up in the leadership lexicon, so rackets with R-A-C-K-E-T-S, and, and a racket, which is you see a lot in organisations and amongst people, is when you make a commitment, but which you find numerous excuses for not delivering on. A really simple example in life is when people say, well, I'm going to go to the gym every week I need to get fit or they might say I need to give up smoking or I need to eat less chocolate and then within sort of two days they're either not going to the gym they're still smoking and they're still eating chocolate and what the racket analysis does is, is what is the behavior that undermines the commitment we make so so thinking about what that behavior is and what is the payoff for not delivering it so you see what I mean there's a there's a behavior that undermines it and there's also something you get and that, that often happens with teams. So teams will say, and, and you, you can often see this when teams say, well, I could do my, my work. It's just that they haven't done their thing. And that to me is a real warning sign in terms of how teams work, which is 
they're in the racket space, which is they're essentially finding excuses for, for, for something that they should be doing themselves. And, and for teams becoming aware of their rackets, like human beings, when you become aware of it, so you don't pretend it's not happening. You sort of go, well, I know I said I'm going to go to the gym, but I'm not going to the gym. So let me be honest about why that is happening. And then think about, do I really want to change that behavior or not? I think that's something that's really important for teams within the broader piece of getting comfortable in discomfort. It's, it's a really interesting piece of work to do and really difficult, actually, for teams to become aware of. But certainly that's something that BSO would pay attention to. And we still need to pay attention to, if you see what I mean, because we constantly develop rackets for, for not delivering as human beings. Do you find teams challenging each other more openly about some of these rackets and, and excuses than, than before? Well, what you're trying to do is actually generate self-awareness within teams themselves. So when they get into that space, they go, ah, okay. So I know I'm saying it's something else, but it can't just be something else. It must be something also to do with me. So I'm not saying that things don't get done by other teams, you know, because that's the real world sometimes. But there is a bit around building your own understanding of what your place in the system is. I think, again, that's what people don't often don't think about within organizations. They don't understand that it's a system and that things don't get, get done because of the system of which they are part. And therefore, thinking about their role in the system and I suppose what the needs of the system are. So, you know, when you're saying about, well, they, they haven't done their thing, you can say, but why, is, why might that be? And what might be my role in that? I think that's a bit that's where, where teams get better. So the bit where actually change happens, I think, is when there's some generosity about it, which goes, I think we've got a challenge with this. I'm concerned about where you might be, but I'm also aware that it might be something that we might not be doing. What's that conversation look like? Again, what might the next steps we take that lead to improvements? You've mentioned about making significant efforts to engage as many actors as possible with a stake in the problem so that you have these multiple perspectives and that you are maximising your chances of knowing the things that are knowable about the situation. Could you talk a bit about the importance of that? We use this phrase now, and I'm always a bit nervous about some of these phrases because they can sound a bit jargon, but we talk about the networked organisation of BSO. So my view is that networked organisation, which is genuinely connected, has the best chance of understanding what is happening and the best chance of finding the best response in, in the circumstances. But it does mean the network has to work well. And I suppose it goes back to this bit that I said earlier. People often misunderstand this as a sort of consultation culture or a collective decision making or a committee culture and it really isn't that so the, the, the way we approach it at BSO so I often say people will often hear me say this is about engagement not about consultation and so it's engaging people in ideas and, and allowing others to, to run with those ideas and to build a sort of understanding and alignment so I often talk about socializing ideas as again perhaps a terrible phrase but I'm like many other chief executives I've got plenty of these annoying phrases which I can probably repeat but I think that that um that has been really important for us. So again, if you take, so we were grappling with the idea of feminist leadership, for example. I just came out of a conversation that I had within an ICSC meeting, I can't remember how many years ago, maybe it was three, three years ago, three, four years ago, with a couple of other CEOs there. And again, I, I tried to build at least my understanding of what that was from asking for their help, which they were very helpful to me. But when we were trying to reframe VSO's work within the sort of context of feminist leadership, we thought about, well, who are the best people in this organization to help us frame that? That wasn't anyone within the strategic leadership group. It was a group of volunteers, so national volunteers and community volunteers with some technical specialists that we had. So it's a group of about six, seven people 
who then engaged the organization in thinking about this and came back and told us how they thought we should do it. And pretty much then we have adopted that and, and used that to reframe the organization. I think that's a really strong and authentic way of tackling a really difficult issue. And again, it moved relatively quickly, but we empowered the group to get on with that, if you see what I mean, and to come back and to tell us how they thought we might approach it. And so when you're doing the networked organization constantly changes where the power lies, I suppose. That's, that's the bit. Because you know, we ceded a lot of power to them, which we knew they could, they could manage and where we could build very quickly a sort of collective understanding and a collective sort of movement around that. But I, I certainly think the focus on building the networked organization is really useful and really powerful. We are lucky at VSO, I have to say this, because we're, we're a single global organization. And that makes it very easy to work in that way because there are power bases don't sit there, actually. And there is, we're not separated into national entities. And therefore, that consciousness of national identity within the global organization doesn't play so strongly. So to be clear, I really passionately believe in national organizations. I just don't believe in VSO national organizations. <laughs> that, you know, I'd rather see active citizenship organizations genuinely from the global south in those countries. I don't need the VSO franchise to exist in those places. I want to come back to you later just for some other thoughts about this kind of intersection between um, power shift and uncertainty and complexity. But just a couple of other things I wanted to touch on. You also describe how leaders can use story to hold complexity and anxiety in check and to help make sense of complexity and also refresh motivation and a sense of rootedness in staff. Could you talk quickly about how you've been using story as a leadership tool in VSO and perhaps in the context of the pandemic as well, please? I think narrative is really very important. I mean, again, it's one of those ways. So the stories we tell about ourselves and the stories we tell about our future, actually. So again, you know, one of the things we've tried to do is to think not just about stories of the past, but talk about stories of the future. So what might the future look like? And so to get teams to think about their future story. And that isn't something that is formalized, but it is about how you tell it to each other and, and what you talk about. We're trying to encourage teams to create their own stories as well and, and their own rootedness in those stories. So what, the way I've done that in the past is try and connect it consistently to the lives of primary actors. And so the stories that they tell me are the ways I can then tell back to the organization about what it is we do. So, you know, one of the things about our work on leaving no one behind, you know, you, and this is one of the challenges of working in COVID, actually, is that I don't have so many of those stories. I keep trying to find ways to engage directly with primary actors within the organization. But you're trying to find illustrations. So, you know, for example, I would have a story. I told a story for a period of time about some young health activists that I met in Karamoja who actually live in a very remote place. And they, they talked about how health services were now getting behind the mountain. You suddenly have these images and narratives of what it is you're trying to do that you can then relate to actually some quite complex and strategic points that you're trying to do and so that's that's one way we're trying to do it so just trying to simplify out the story and saying what we've done in Karamoja and what these activists have told us we're doing that is what what this is all about and that is what we're trying to do in these many places around the world so I suppose it's also the same thing about our story of COVID-19 adaptation if you don't replay that story of how we shifted in 10 days, that story gets lost. Many organizations will sit there and go, oh, we're just not quick enough. And you go, okay, that might be true. But let's just remember what happened in March 2020. Actually, we pivoted our program in 10 days. So that story isn't true. We're not quick enough. We're very mm. quick. 
We just need to think about well, what do we do then? So you're, you're constantly trying to get people to reflect on what has happened, what it might mean. And I heard a female mountain climber. She was a famous one. I can't remember her name, but she was talking about her experience as a mountain climber. And she said, what's the, what's the difference between you and the male mountain climbers you travel with? And she said, well, the difference between me and them is they forget to look back at where they've come. So what I took from that was often you're always looking at the mountain peak and then you try and get to the peak and of course you get beyond it and there's another peak and you know you sort of your energy goes but actually if you if you look back and see how far you've come you realize how much you've achieved and therefore gives you the energy to go to the next step and that's something we try and do a lot at BSO so the, what I call the reflective in our practice we look back we see where we've come from and that gives us the the energy to go forward and again, a recent example for me around stories at BSO. So we had a part of our strategy over the last six-year strategy, which is just coming to an end, where we talked about this piece about amplification. How do we achieve scale? And we said that we needed to become much better at engaging with global networks of active citizens. And in doing that, we felt we could amplify the effect of our work, but, but actually other citizens in the global south could take on their own direction. And when we put that in the strategy, people said, well, how are we going to do it? And I'd say, I've no idea, but that's what we're going mm. to work out. When you first say it, people go, but it's madness. We've got something in a strategy, which we just don't know how we're going to deliver on. And, you, and I would say, but we know it's important and we've agreed it's important. And we have the ability, if we connect, to find a way forward. If you fast forward that six years, we have a, a really strong engagement portfolio where we're working with networks of youth activists around the world. We're working on national volunteering po policy, which is connected to civil society space. We're advising the African Union on their volunteering platform for the whole of the continent. You know, and it's suddenly in this, and you go, remember that? We, we knew we had to do something. We didn't know how to get there. That can give us great courage and energy to take on the next challenge if we think it's the right one. That's great. And so are there any other ways, kind of small scale futures ways, which, which staff engage that kind of thinking into their regular practice, aside from this kind of reflecting on the, on the past to inspire and in, in, inform future action and also telling these stories about, about the future and, the, and their roles? The kind of, some of those small scale things where you see futures, futures thinking, empowering them in their work. But I certainly think this, this piece around working out first steps. So, so there's two contrary things, actually. So, so one is around reframing the imagined future and working backwards, which I, I like at any level. That can be for a whole organization or for a, a team. So thinking about, well, if we imagine the world in three years' time or six years' time, what would we like it to look like? You can work backwards from that and thinking what might happen. I tend to think that uh, you can't work out the, the whole steps, though. So what you, you work, out, work out is what the imagined future might be and what is the first step on that journey. And I think that applies to whatever scale of work you're doing. And there is a phrase which we've used a lot at BSO. I looked it up this morning because we used the phrase. I didn't even know where it came from. It's, it's <laughs> the words from a, from a poet called Antonio Machado. And it, it says that, traveller, there is no path. The path is made by walking. And it's, it's really, it's, it's a phrase that we use a lot at BSO. And so you're trying to get people to go, okay, we can imagine where the, the future is, but we don't know what that path looks like, but we know we've got to walk it. So let's start walking it. And what's the first step? And that's, that's, I think, incredibly empowering, actually. People generally know what the first step might be. And, so, and often they might know what the second step might be. So that, I think, works at all levels, if I'm going to be honest. 
I like that. Thanks for sharing that. So this has been great, and I've but I've taken up enough of your time. So finally, any kind of wider thoughts that you've got on this kind of where this kind of thinking about being more prepared for uncertainty and complexity kind of engages with the wider power shift conversations and, and discussions that, that we're having in our sector. And then finally, you know, what next with this and how, how, how do you keep continually reinforcing and, and reinventing this at VSO? Yeah, so I suppose I think where it relates to power shift is this, it sort of challenges us to think about, because in an uncertain world, it, it forces us, particularly in the global north, to stop pretending that we're the ones who know what the future should or could look like. And I think particularly when it's aligned to this idea of dispersed leadership, particularly dispersed leadership in the global south, I think it really sort of speaks to this, well, how are we going to manage complexity? And I think often you know, where I would challenge organisations, and of course I would challenge them because we've done this, is, is actually it doesn't need a centre. And, and therefore you, that really challenges you around power because what often people think about is, oh, it's a centre in the global north and we'll move it to a centre in the global south. And you go, well, why would you move it to any centre? There's a way of actually dispersing this without creating a, a decentralised. So I've, I've been challenged around this within our organisation. So sometimes people misunderstand. They go, we're decentralising. You go, no, no, we're not decentralising. That's very different. We're dispersing. So we're a global organisation. So again, I think it's really important we hold on to our role as a global organisation. We're not a national organisation. We want to encourage national organisations. We want to play our role as a global organisation. And we keep asking ourselves, what is that role? But that role as a global organization can be so tightly framed, but at the same time dispersed, and the ownership of it can be dispersed. So I think it really challenges us around what the future of global organizations might be. And I think it provides a way, a possible way of actually reimagining the global organization, which is neither in the global south nor in the global north. It is genuinely global, but with, with strong ownership from the global south. It's not centralized, but it's not decentralized is dispersed i would argue some really interesting things for power shift yeah and i think that's really interesting this kind of differentiation between dispersal and uh, decentralization i think that's i think you make a good distinction there but i think sometimes we use those words interchangeably but you're saying that there's there's actually a difference a complete difference i mean fundamental and again so i had this so again just to give my lived experience of it now you know so after six years of it so someone did come up the other day and said but we said we were decentralizing i said i don't think we've ever said we're decentralizing and one of the challenges around dispersed leadership is actually it's very tight strategically and so i think people often misunderstand that that actually you can only do leadership really well if you have strong alignment around a strategic frame within that strategic frame you have a lot of latitude and innovation. And so there is, it is very much this tight, loose tension. And that won't fit every organization or every situation. But certainly our experience at VSO is that that works really well for us. And it does challenge these ideas of decentralization, you know, which might be right for others, but it certainly isn't how we approach it. So finally, you've been on this journey for six years. You said you're coming to the end of one strategy cycle. What next? How are you going to continue to, to build on what you've already done at VSO? So, so what I'm very aware of is a constant practice. So again, you know, sort of human beings naturally seek reassurance. We want to minimize risk. It does mean constantly reflecting on what you're doing and, and how you do it. It does mean having a certain humility. I think you know, one of the ways we approach this is to remind ourselves that we know tomorrow we can be better than we are today. And that's, that's a good thing. You know, that, that, that is a, a challenge. And that means we're constantly learning. It isn't, it isn't a stick to beat yourself with, though. It's really a, the fact that actually you know you can do better tomorrow than you are today. 
And the reason you can do that is because you have these wonderful colleagues around you. So it's trying to remind people of that and remind people of the things we've done together and to feel confident in the, in the face of that. Thanks very much, Philip. Thank you. You've been very generous with both your insights and your time. And I think it's been fascinating to hear about the, the thinking and the transformation that's gone on with VSO over the, over the past six years. And I'm sure it'll be very interesting for others and inspiring for them as well. So thank you very much. Thanks, Vicky. Thanks ever so much indeed. Both papers are linked in the show notes, along with another podcast, which we've already released on the recommendations from our report. 